a listener production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to episode nine of the Howie Games. Great to have you on board. This week we come to you from Phillip Island, home of the Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix. So for mine, there can really only be one guest this week, five-time world champion, Mick Doohan. Your man, Big Penguin. Yes, Pickle, mighty Mick Doohan. Five world titles, all after busting his tibia, his fibula and contracting compartment syndrome. Ooh, sounds nasty. Anywho, if you don't want to miss any of the Howie games, subscribe now. Hit the button, crew. Join the revolution. Spread the love. Word. I've had the pleasure of working with Mick on various motor racing broadcasts over the years with Network 10, and there's no doubt Mick's got a real presence to him. In fact, it's a little bit hard in some ways not to be in awe of Mick because he rolls in a very, very different type of world, well, different to mine. Anyway, this chat, for instance, was recorded in what Mick calls his shed, which has all his old race bikes in it and his helicopter. And after this interview, he organised me a lift home in his private jet. That's sort of the way Mick rolls, but for all that, he's a really, really low-key guy. He's a shorts and T-shirt type operator, and he doesn't have a pretentious bone in his body. I certainly got to know Mick a lot better in this episode of the Howie Games. I hope you do too. Enjoy. Oh, my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. Well, Mick Doohan, welcome to the Howie Games. It's taken a bit of organisation. We've had a few cock-ups along the way, but we're finally here. I appreciate your time. No, pleasure, pleasure. Yeah, a week apart, but I mean... We're here <laughs> probably, now. Probably we're here fun. now. And I realise now how big you are in this part of the world because I got in a cab at the airport and I gave the cabbie a general address. He said, oh, that's Mick Doohan's place. Yeah, probably took you the long way too. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Well, with, the, with the fair, he did. But I really appreciate your time. It's bizarre because... We know each other a little bit through uh, working together, I guess, on the on the MotoGP coverage where I stand beside you. And uh, Mick's just getting his coffee and his sugar organised. <laughs> you probably don't have sugar, do you? No, no, no. Too healthy for all I that. I didn't think you, you know, would. Yeah, just, we've, we've sat together on the MotoGP coverage. Is there <laughs> rum in there? I can do it. I did one with Darren Sammy, the West Indian really? cricketer, and he pulled <laughs> out rum. And I couldn't. Inter- I can't remember the second half of the interview. Yeah, well, there you go. It's probably better than the first half, though. <laughs> Yeah, we worked together on the MotoGP coverage before and with the Grand Prix at Albert Park, you've taken me in a few laps around a Mercedes. But apart from that, um, I guess we don't know each other that well, so it's always a bit bizarre to sit down and have a chat. But these things always start with, where did it start, Mick? When's your first memory of motorcycles or being interested in, I guess, are a good spot as any to start? Yeah, look, um, to be honest, it's... I really don't know to be uh, the, f- the first time I was that long ago and then I was that young, to be honest. Um, uh, you know, my, my brother's, my eldest brother was, was, was the first interested in, in, you know, mini bikes, the little dirt bikes back in the day. And then, and then as brothers do, you know, they, you know, if you're playing football, you want to be part of it and so on. So same with motorcycles. So, you know, I was fortunate enough, my father was involved with some earth, earth moving com- uh, companies. And so, so with that, there was, you know, as Brisbane was developing, there was areas that we could go and ride. So, so some of my first um, recollections of, of riding, in fact, were actually out the back of the Gold Coast here when they were building the Hins, Hins Dam. So, right. so riding around there. And with that, both of my brothers had, had pissed off completely and left me, you know, could hardly walk, <laughs> let alone ride. And I'm now lost in the, in the middle of this, what seemed like a big, uh, big forest somewhere. So, so that was just because I was frightened, like, where the hell am I, you know, and I've been left alone on this dirt bike. I hope the thing doesn't stop. <laughs> So were your family involved? Did they have a bike shop, your family? Uh, eventually they did, yeah. Eventually, right. um, you know, after we we all got involved with with racing um, and then my father decided to uh, start importing um, bits and bobs from the US and so on <clears throat> to, to add on to these things, high-performance products and, and whatnot. So... So that then led to another thing, and then eventually he bought a, a motorcycle shop on the north side of Brisbane, which was called Doohan's Honda in the end. Right. And you, without going too far, you, you, your old man passed away when you were reasonably young. That's right, yeah. You? I was 12 years old, so, you know, so that I stopped, I stopped uh, competing. I didn't stop riding, but I stopped competing for about three years. 
and then got back into it when I was around 15 and then sort of stopped to did about a year or so and then stopped again until I took up road racing at around 19 which again was off and on because I stopped that after about six months and then got back into it when pretty, I was about 21. It'll be pretty <clears> tough I guess if you you know as a 12 year old when you when your old man's no longer around I guess. Yeah but you know again at, at that point in time to be honest you didn't it didn't really sort of sink in what was going on anyway you know and uh, it's just part of life really you know and um and really that just sort of you just took it in your stride mm. and you got on with it like kids do today and and like they did in the past so it's just one of those things yeah it's not a pleasant experience but i mean what do you do you, you can't sit around and bloody uh, bitch and moan about it and um you know it's uh it's one of those little other um things you learn as you're going through life another thing you deal with all types of emotions and you know certainly not one and a good one to be experiencing at a young age but i mean it's 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 part of the deal so when did you realize that you were good on a motorbike when did you realize that maybe you were a little bit better than some of the other kids your age Mm. look you know i always felt that i wanted to win i never sort of i never felt that i just wanted to compete so that was that was you know that was a that was clear from the outset, but um, you know, dirt bike riding. There was a couple of other young kids that were, were good, um, and you know, there was probably three of us in in at my in my age group at that period. That you know, I was probably the I was never as good as one of the other kids, and um, but you know, I could win the odd thing if he was, you know, beat him occasionally. But this other guy would beat me more often than not, and um, and then there was another guy. Him and I would run for second and third essentially. Mm. But uh, it wasn't until I got to road racing that I actually um, felt that, you know, that all the dirt biking experience had actually helped me because I hopped on the road bike and the thing sliding around underneath me, it, it didn't bother me whatsoever. So um, I was always afraid of the crashes and the speed involved with with riding on the on the street or the road. And um, um, But, you know, would that become irrelevant again after you've been doing it for a little while because the speed doesn't really come into account. But I... Um, I, uh, it wasn't until that that I noticed perhaps I've got a little bit of an edge on these guys because they're all a little bit frightened of the thing moving around and sliding. So, so that was when I probably recognised that I've, I've perhaps I've got a bit of an edge over these guys. Which has, I guess, been now if people have followed your path, sort of Jack Miller's now and the Casey Stoners of the world, they've come from that sort of dirt bike background, haven't they, before <coughs> they've hit the tarmac? No, absolutely. And, and um, you know, at the, at the same time that I arrived on the road racing scene especially on a global level you know there were the the likes of the you know the kenny roberts who'd come from that background you know he was before me and so almost a barry sheen era or actually yeah he knocked barry off his perch mm. so to speak and then the likes of the wayne rainey's and freddie spencer's and eddie lawson's and these guys they are all american dirt trackers what they call which is a little bit different in australia we run almost a traditional in a way a traditional type street circuit whereas they run ovals over there what we'd call speedway almost but on a bigger um a bigger um a, a bigger uh, a bigger field but um you know i don't know americans don't like to turn right for any reason but <laughs> but uh, but i mean um essentially the same thing so so they were one of the first ones really to find that it's um you know dirt dirt bike riding and dirt riding on on a dirt track actually benefits your racing and and now today you see all the likes of the marquezes uh, yeah. uh, uh valentino rossi has his own what he calls a, a farm or, or something like nice ranch farm. i think you nice know ranch. with with the uh, with you know just set up there's no cows just motorcycles on the things <laughs> you know? but um you know so they're all doing that and if anything it's probably revitalized his uh, his career too the amount of dirt biking he's doing you know and you know at his age in comparison to the other guys he's he's on the top of his game so it's funny because you know i read a bit about you and there's not much about you before you started doing well what you did well like when did you leave school and was it that you were going to ride motorbikes yeah, when you left school no look i left school as soon as i could you know so what up top of age uh, 15 mm-hmm. <clears throat> but um, and what'd you do then whatever i could you know so uh, certainly you know I, I i hadn't been competing then and uh, um so you're working 
Uh, just working, yes. I just got into the into the the, the, the trade business, building trade business, and then what um, was your what was your strong point? Be uh, no, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever I could do, right, know? right. So you know, so I did a bit of everything from uh, laying concrete to putting pools into uh, you know you? helping my brother. You know, he's a carpenter and um, and bits and pieces. So. So I never really sort of um, excelled at anything, but I was never focused on any one particular area. So, um, <clears throat> and as I say, then then I sort of fell into road racing and then it went from there. But, you know, I, I've never really sort of, uh, you know, you said yeah, there's not much to be said or you've mm. read about me prior to the racing. That's because I've, I've never really sort of done the warts and all. Right. Sort of, uh, this is where I'm from. This is yeah, where okay. I feel like I should be going. Well, the only thing that um, your, your mate Daryl Beatty, who I work on the bike, said, he said the first time he met you, he, he, it was a place on the Gold Coast, and he said, I think you were there with a few other mates, he said it was a pretty rough and ready type of setup. It was a, it was a long <coughs> way from where you eventually ended up. Yeah, you know, but I mean, at the end of the day, young, you know. So, you know, it's because um, yeah, Daryl was 15, so maybe, you was know, he? He, yeah, so he, <laughs> he, he, well, he hadn't even experienced, you know, anything other than high school at that point I in time. I can't imagine him at 15. <laughs> So, you know, I think he's referring to a place on the beach that I was living with a couple of buddies and, you know, it was, you know, the Gold Coast in the mid-80s, mid um, you know, it was pretty laid back and, and you know, you're just surfing and, and messing around, so there wasn't too much... Uh, Did you surf? There, well, you're not very well either. Right. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> I was lucky you could ride bikes, Exactly, <laughs> so, but um, the, um, um, but, you know, there was... There were some guys there, some well-known surfers that went on to uh, to do some bits and pieces and um, and so on. So it was just you know it was just young teenagers, sort of just having a great time. So it wasn't it wasn't too rough and ready. We certainly weren't the Hell's Angels hanging out ready right, to, no. <laughs> to go and do anything. No, he didn't describe it as that. He didn't describe no, it as that at no, all. No, we were just having fun as as uh, young guys do. So tell me about where did you first start becoming successful on your bike? Obviously, you ended up in Europe, but how did you get to that point, Mick? Um, uh, with 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 uh, just riding here on the Gold Coast, to be honest, I I, uh, I had a um, I had a race here uh, with with a guy Michael Dowson who ended up being my teammate, and um, um, he uh, he um, he was the Australian champion at the time, and I just done a I, I had a bike that had been sort of lent to me or something to do a race on. And I, I, I competed fairly well against him, and then and then I had nothing after that, and uh, and he actually got in contact with a friend of my brother's, because these guys were looking for somebody to 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 help out in road racing, but they they didn't have the budget to help one of the, the more established guys, but they wanted to help a young guy come through. So, long and short, I ended up getting that ride, and and pretty much it just went from there. So. You know, Yamaha started supporting uh, us as a group, me and the group who were helping me out with with production motorcycles. And then, you know, then next minute I'm off to Japan with Yamaha and then I've signed with Yamaha Australia here. And the following year, I, or during that year, I had um, all the all the manufacturers, Honda, Yamaha and Suzuki, wanting to sign me for, for what's now known as, as MotoGP. So, and that was all over a space of a couple of years. So it all happened pretty quickly. What was how old were you when you first went to Japan? That would have been an eye. No, I'm sure your Japanese wasn't that flash at that stage. No, it still isn't. <laughs> right. But um, but if anything, Japan's probably more Japanese now. As far as there was more, they were trying to accommodate. I think right. uh, in the eighties, they, they were trying to accommodate. Uh, so how old were you been when you went over there? Eighty. Seven was the first year, so I was 21 going on 22, yeah, so, and then... Um, Did you know much about the world then, or was, were you in Japan going, wow? Well, for sure, here? you know, like other than what you learn at school, you know, the geography wasn't... Which you wasn't at 15, a, yeah. there wasn't a great deal of, of there, I would <laughs> you know, have but, uh, but, you know, um, you know that, as far as experience in different cultures and whatever else, that was the first, um, the first experience with that, but... But all in all, it was good. As a, as any young kid, you're going up there with, you know, what you go flash, flash gear, flash material. People helping you doing this, mm. and people wanting to give you that, and it's like, wow, this is different than what I'm used to. So, so you know, again, all those type of things help, and you know, it's all part of the, of the, I, I guess the, what what they're trying to sell you is the dream and to keep you going, and uh, so they're just sort of molding you to 
to make sure that you want to continue to ride with them or, or whatever else. But that was the first, um, I guess, uh, the, the first experience of, you know, this is this is pretty cool. It's not just running around, uh, you know, putting the bike on the back of the trailer or the ute mm-hmm. or whatever, going to a uh, going to a race meet, and, and perhaps uh, if I really focused, I could uh, I could make a living out of this. Were you fit? Did you train hard? <clears throat> um, I started to about that period. So what did that involve? Um, that then I, I hooked up uh, Miles Stewart was a he became a world triathlete yep champion you know, yeah I so know. I hooked up with him and we started I didn't do any triathlons but I was training with those guys so so I was doing a lot of running at that point and um, not so much cycling but swimming running and uh, I'd, I'd always been sort of involved with that type of thing at schools and whatever anyway and um, and then. Um, and then it wasn't really, you know, that was to a degree. And then it wasn't really, I didn't really step up the real fitness until I got to, to MotoGP. So that was a different level again. So at that point when you're in Japan and people started to knock on your door about going to Europe, what type of coverage is there in Australia? Was it on Channel 9 at that stage? Were you seeing 500cc uh, racing? Look, 500cc, I think Gardner 87 won in 87. So it was SBS essentially, which right. was, um, you know, Will Hagen and SBS and... I'm not sure whether the following year may have been Channel Nine or it was still SBS. And um, but was there enough of it to get you looking at it and thinking? Oh, sure, you know. But me. again, you know, it's it's we're talking surfing. It's a bit like a surfer. You still they still had magazines and they still had yep. coverage. There's no internet and you know all that garbage. But um, there was enough to know what was going on. So uh, you knew that that was um, you know that was the pinnacle of the sport. You know, and, and, and unlike surfing, it's. You know, you're aware that there's different categories and different disciplines and so on. So, but for 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 motor for two wheels, MotoGP or 500, as it was called mm. then, is the pinnacle of of everything, but especially road racing. And um, so that's where you. But you know, even then, that was that was completely. You know, so you weren't even. Dream stuff. Yeah, you weren't even thinking about it. It was just like wow, you know. So you know, it wasn't until. The following year, and then um, and then I'd met Barry Sheen, and then Barry was the one sort of saying, "Hey, you, you know, have you thought about this? You should help me." He helped me with a few. I opened a couple of doors, but it was you know when I'd done a, a couple of um, World Superbike events. '88 was the first year of the World Superbike uh, races, so I competed in two of those rounds, and and I won three out of the four races, and um, and. Uh, was leading the other and crashed, picked it back up, got into third and crashed again and decided that was enough. So I think after those two <laughs> results, the Japanese were like, geez, you know, this young kid out of Australia, you know, uh, this young bikey <laughs> so how, how <laughs> out of that, Australia. How does that work then? You, you, you've left school at 15, you've got Japanese marks knocking on your door. Is someone helping you? And can you give me an indication? Yeah, but I mean, leaving, you know, being an academic doesn't, you know, that's not the being end all. No, you know? not at all. So, so, you know, having the nous to know, you know, I need some help. Yep. Or I need to put this together. How do I do it? And having the, the the ability and the guts to actually go and find somebody. That's what you need. So. So how do you learn that? So you know, I, I think you grow up with that. You know, I think you know your family help you with that, mm. and I think the will to you know to know to make the right decision, the wrong decision. You know, so we've all got that. A lot of people choose not to 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 want to to want to use it. That. Um, but thankfully, again, moving back to what I was talking about earlier, is the guys were helping me out in in, um, in the early days. Um, uh, one of those guys um, was sort of semi-retired type of thing, and uh, and he he offered some advice as well. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, I utilised that. I also utilised the, the the Barry Sheen you know experience. So again, getting back to you know talking working things through you know what asking a few questions you know rather than just going hey yeah here we go i'll sign the dotted line (laughs) can you remember what you signed for oh absolutely yeah can you tell me how much your first contract was was a bit better than what i was earning the year before right right but it's not enormous dollars at that point as a young bloke well i don't know it was you know you know still enormous dollars (laughs) today (laughs) it was okay it was okay so yeah so no it was all right so where do you start your first premier class race in uh, in eighty nine, so yeah. so uh, round one, round one, yeah, which is where Japan, right? How yeah. are you feeling at that point? Are you looking at blokes on the grid and thinking, oh, no, not really, because again, um, as I say, like no matter what what it was, I was always sort of focused on on not so much being better than those guys, but winning. And um, you know, of course, there's a lot of names on the grid that are just um, 
you know, you've read about and you've, you know, you've either ridden with them at some point in time, you've met a few of them by that time, by that point in time anyway, and you'd been testing and whatnot, but, but still it was, you know, the first Grand Prix, there is a lot of, um, you know, globally, it's still the second largest motorsport on the planet mm -hmm. it was then, you know, you got a hundred thousand people in the, in the, um, in the stadium there and or the circuit at suzuka at that point and or 80 whatever the capacity is 80 odd thousand and half the world watching exactly so so you know but you know you don't focus on that but um long and short the the, the i didn't finish the siding lap i don't think and the engine broke so i didn't actually finish or start that race but um oh, so the formation lap you didn't yeah. get through well oh. the engine broke but um um but all in all, you know, it was it was excitement and nerves to a degree because you know here I am on I've now you know two years earlier, you know I'm riding production bikes, mm. you know living off off the prize money at, at a at a um, at the the local Australian mm. rounds, you know on a 250cc production street bike, you know with 45 horsepower. Now I'm on a 180 horsepower thing, which's lighter than that thing, against the world's best. So it was a bit of a a bit of a sort of a, a, a moment, I guess. But, um, Did you come away from that first weekend thinking, I'll, I'll be okay here? <clears throat> oh, look, you know, at that point in time, I, I can't even recall where I qualified, but it was, you know, sort of in the, in the higher end of the top 10 anyway, you right. know. So um, certainly didn't feel like the 500 or the MotoGP bike was the first bike I felt that, you know, this is going to take a bit of time to conquer, you know. It's a completely different animal than everything else. So, so um you know they're lighter they're more rigid they got more power the way they react the way they the power actually is 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 uh, is, is produced it's a completely different animal so um that was the, that was the first one that i realized well, there's a bit of work to be done here and that some you know throughout that year there was times where i doubted whether i was going to be able to conquer this thing so because it'd be i think also that come from not having that um initiation through the the smaller ranks you know i only did one year on super bikes you know i only only did um so I, I didn't come through that way i didn't come through the 250 path or now the moto 2 path or the mm. anything like that it was just straight from production bike super bike and then the super bike you know it was a lot heavier it was uh, it was a lot less power and it was really basically uh, a street bike with an exhaust pipe and and a, a set of slick tires so it was a big step to go to that next level but but again, determination to, to want to, I, I knew that I could walk away from that perhaps and go, um, go back to a superbike race. I didn't want to do that. I had a two year contract with, with Honda and, um, you know, I wanted to, 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 to make sure that I'd give myself the best opportunity to uh, see if I could do it. So that's when I really focused in and started training and pushing myself and trying to work out how am I going to stop making some of these mistakes I'm making how am I going to get on top of it so so then the following year you know I I um I, um, I got on top of it and, and went from there had a race win had a race win yeah so, so we're talking 93 91 no 90 sorry 90 so 90. what where's your first Grand Prix winning in Hungary Hungary <clears throat> and yeah. that was the first time we were given equal equal equipment i was about to sign for suzuki to be honest because uh, honda was still not really giving me that much support well they were giving me support mm -hmm. without a doubt there was wayne gardner and myself but um i was all, back then and there was a lead rider and the second rider clear clear number ones and number two you were number two and i was number two gardner was number one number one and the tires was also there was number one and number two so so the number one riders would get a um, um, tyres, you know, get the best tyres, and the second rider you'd have to qualify. So there'd only be an X amount of spare good tyres. Mm. So and whoever qualified as a second rider in the different teams, they'd be giving these tyres out. So you know, Suzuki had mentioned that they were going to give me, you know, everything. You know, number be Schwanz's Schwanz's teammate, but equal equipment, and. Um, so I just agreed. Um, I just agreed with uh, with Honda to um, they'd agreed on the same thing, and that was the first race where we had uh, everything uh, everything equal equipment. So and I won that, and then uh, and then the rest is really history. 
Do you have any recollection of that race or standing on the podium or a, having a beer afterwards or chatting with your family at home? Is there anything that sticks in your mind thinking, well, I've won my first Grand Prix and I've come a long way in a, in a short period of time? No, definitely. Well, it was a long period, to be honest. Like nowadays, that's a, that's a long... You know, I got on the podium, I think, once in, in, in 89. I, I was out for... A, um, I missed a number of races in 89 due, due to injuries, but not at not on the 500, but at Suzuka 8-hour, I lost a finger and so on. But, um, um, but yeah, I remember that race. I remember, you know, I'm on pole position. I remember screwing the start pretty badly and then having to come back from a long way and, um, and, and winning it. And it was, um, you know, it was a bit of a, uh, you know, it wasn't, it was excitement and, and, um, and an amazing feeling but it was like it it was truly like a well this is where it starts moment you right know? so now i can i can do this i'm got an e- equal platform here now and i know that i can um, compete with these guys and then it never it never um dropped after that i was never off the podium unless i was crashed i was never um you know competing for the world title from there on in you, so you mentioned your teammate and it fascinates me. After working in motorsport for a while, that old expression about the first person you have to beat is your teammate. And we look at it now with Hamilton and Rossby, and they go hammer and tong. Two weeks ago, Lorenzo and Rossi are having a crack at each other in a press conference, which is great for the viewer. How do you keep things on some type of level keel when you're in a team, yet you're doing everything you can to beat the bloke that you're beside, whether it's Gardner or whoever it may be? I'm not talking specifics. Just <clears throat> Look, I think... I think it's um, every every rider is um, is out for themselves. Every team is out for themselves. And I mean team, even if there's two riders or three riders in the team, the teams want to beat the other team, you know, mm. because at the end of the day, there may be bonuses in for you if you're a mechanic working for such and such or, or whatever else. But it's also the ego that, you know, hey, you know, we've got the same equipment, but we're beating you. We've either... We've adjusted things different, or used different parts that are available to us. To you know, we've 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 actually we've bettered you guys. So, so that's the same as a rider. As a rider, you're there. You know, you mentally want to mess with them as much as you possibly can without, you know, um, you know, being being stupid about it. And um, how do you do that mentally? How do you mess with the bloke in the garage? Oh, next just year? subtle things. You know, I'm sure you do it with your with your media mates. You know. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't get in a mental disintegration too regularly, to be honest, Mick. <laughs> but, I mean, but, I mean, it's just little things. You okay. Know? But, um, you know, and I'm that far removed from competition now that, I, yep. you know, I, but, uh, but there's just little things that you do. It's, it's, it's not that difficult. And, um, um, and, um, and really, you're just trying to get every edge you can. <laughs> so whether it be on the track or off the track, you know, mental games are, are played all over the place. So, but... Um, He's the only guy that you know what he has and he knows what you have, whereas the rest of the guys, even if even if you had the same machinery as what I had, and we're, but we're in a different garage, I don't know what you've got, you know. So you're not really my direct teammate. So the first no. guy I need to go is a guy that I can see. I know what he's got, you know. So if, he, if, he, if he's beating me, then... <laughs> You know, well, the, the 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 mechanics, the the uh, the the hierarchy, the owners of Honda and whatever else know who's winning and why they're winning, and also all the technical data that we have. So, so same with uh, Lewis and uh, and Nico uh, Hamilton and, and Rosberg. Same with those guys. You know, for them, okay, they want to win, but they also want to prove to their their bosses that hey I'm the man you need to be signing next week because at the end of the day you know it's your livelihood as well and and you're really only a spare part you know if if you're the you know, same as the bike if something breaks on the bike they just replace that part if you're just another part if you the rider's broken we'll just replace him so because there's, there's plenty of them lining up to uh, yeah you know it's cutthroat isn't it I, I, I well all sport is you know and uh, well, I noticed the other day. Lewis, when he got beat the other day by Nico, he, he uh, you know, and then the, the engine blew up is why he got beat. And he pretty much intimated that they weren't giving him the same equipment. He intimated that the Mercedes were trying to nobble him, which was an extraordinary <laughs> thing to say. But I guess you get so mentally in your own yeah. world that it's me and they're all against me type yeah, of Yeah, look, you know, there's times, and then like I was saying with Gardner, you know, and, and you can tell, you know, some things, but I used to get upset with because i could see that he had different equipment and i'm like well you know 
what, what the hell's going on here? What, what's this? You know, and it might have been worse. I don't know, but I mean, he's still. <laughs> but it was different. It's like, what is it? You know? <laughs> and uh, but so these type of things aren't good, you know. So, but um, so that's why you know I was probably the one to push for Honda to make everything the same, you know, which probably didn't work out too good because I had about I can't remember about almost half the field on Honda's one year, you, you know, did. because <laughs> because you know I was I want everything the same, but uh, you know, but. Um, um, you know whether or not to say that um, they're trying to screw you. You know I've only had that done once to me is when I'd signed for Honda, and um, and it was at Phillip Island. I think the first race I did at Phillip Island, the last race on a superbike. I was leading the Swan Series at the time, and and the guy looking after the team was upset that I'd just gone and signed for Honda, mm-hmm. and um, so they the, the the clutch the clutch was worn. So. So if the clutch didn't actually, uh, and they knew it was worn and it probably wouldn't do the start, which it didn't, but, um, so they weren't putting a new clutch on <laughs> to make sure that I didn't finish because they wanted their, their rider was going to be there next year to win this series. Holy moly. Exactly. But if it, if it did get off the line, I didn't have enough fuel in the tank to finish the race. <laughs> So I didn't find that out until after, but I thought that's... Uh, and how did you approach about... that afterwards? Well, you know, again, I just kept it in the memory banks right. in case I... <laughs> I needed to use it at any point. But he's cut but, throat. But that's I mean, cut throat. But it's, you know, that type of thing. But I can't imagine when they're both... I think they're both the driving for the team next year. But, yeah, you know, I'm sure it's in Lewis's but, head you know, But, you know, there, there, there's been little things like that, what teams do, you know. But, I mean, the, the rest of it, I can't imagine that... Uh, that's probably a bit in your head. But as drivers and as sports people and as human beings, we tend to sort of... Um, we sometimes take the emotions a little bit too yeah, far. Yeah, no doubt. Which is what the, the punters outside... No, the that's circuit, right. So, that's what yeah. we love. That's why we watch sport, yeah. isn't it? Plenty more of Mick Doohan still to come, but first a look at next Thursday's episode of the Howie Games, featuring two-time Melbourne Cup winning jockey and slightly loose cannon, it must be said, Jim Cassidy. Now, trust me when I say you will not need to have any interest in horse racing at all to enjoy next week's ep with a pumper. For a jockey to be one of the 24 to be in the race is a massive feeling, just parading, getting on, going down the race, cantering up the straight to the 1,200-metre start where it all starts, that is electrifying to be one of the 24. To compete in it and win it is – I love it today. The way I'm talking is if yeah, I'm getting see. ready to go and yeah, do it again Saturday, you know. Um, it, jockeys must be honoured. They must feel honoured to do that, whether you, if you're a golfer to play in the Masters, you, you might get one opportunity to do it, you might win it, you may not. But to be at the Masters, I, I know every golfer would say – an experience of a lifetime. Mm. And that's the same with the Melbourne Cup. Um, that feeling never goes away once you've had the taste of it. Jim Cassidy next Thursday on the Howie Games. And Jim's fantastic book, Pumper, is out now. It is a ripper read, so get a look at it. Now, back to Mick Doohan. So things are going beautifully. Your big crash at the Dutch TT, that's 1992-92. And you're leading the championship then. Yeah. 60-odd points in front. So what happened that day? There's, uh, um, I, I tried to find that this morning on the great yeah. YouTube. Couldn't find it. Yeah. Um, what happened? Yeah, look, that was a, it was only qualifying, I think. Or even, was it? Yeah. So, um, and um, the, um, with the with the two-stroke engines of the 500, um, we'd, uh, we being the team, would always um, um, put, a, put a new piston and... Um, and rings on the on the on the on the engine and break them in in the first few laps of qualifying and then so we've got a fresh bike for um a fresh bike uh, for for sunday because mm. the engines never had many mile very very few miles on them to begin with but we'd never start a race with more than about 125 kilometers on the on the on the pistons or, okay. or, or rings which you know isn't very far you know you know, if you if you did that with your street bike, you know, you wouldn't get too far. <laughs> but <laughs> the um, anyway, so I'd done two laps. It was at six kilometres around that place. I think at that point, I think it's not that long any longer. But um, so six or six and a half k. So two laps is enough. Thirteen kilometres thereabouts to just bed things in, and then and then went. And just as I just after I passed the start finish line, they put out the red flag. Because Randy Mamola um, had gone out on his. Uh, 
on his Yamaha and apparently it was leaking some type of fluid so there was a few other guys that had gone down and I went into turn one and that was the first time I'd gone in there with anger the other ones was just a bit of a, a breaking this engine in type of thing and went in there and then as I come out I must have crossed over this bit of a um, bit of a damp patch or whatever and um, and the bike just snapped sideways and then flipped me off over and I went up the road normally a slide off and you'd separate the bike was on top of me normally you get get to the grass or the gravel and even if it was on top of you you'd separate but because i'm going up the road and with nothing to you know no no friction to be able to stop me mm. to separate i tried to actually spiral myself out from underneath the bike because you know, i was probably doing 160 180 k with the bike on top of me going up the road and um you know so we were starting to get a little bit uncomfortable as you could imagine so i can imagine yeah, so, so, so i spiral myself and everything spiral except for my leg so i'm you know you have to think i probably broke my own leg in doing that and um and it wasn't until i and then i then was i slid off to the side and did separate and um and then i tried to stand up and i could feel the bones grinding against each other oh, and, and then uh you know, and then it was okay. Well, I'll stay here for a moment and and call over somebody to uh, come and uh, pick me up. So that was you know that was the start of the end really. Then it was um, some malpractice up there and. Uh, Wait, how do you mean? Well, the, the the doctor hadn't done the right thing up up there and. Um, so what was actually wrong with your leg? Just a spiral fracture right. of the the the. the, the lower two bones without getting technical but, so, uh, and the first bit of medical work didn't work out as it well the, the medical work was no problem but it was um i think during the operation i'm no doctor and and, and you know it's um but i had a had another surgeon there with us who was then thrown out of the the hospital at the time when he was complaining about that the procedures you're doing isn't correct and then and then he came back the following day and noticed that there was issues and then uh, he ended up medivacking myself and Kevin Schwantz out of that hospital. So where was that hospital? In, um, in and around Assen in Holland. So um, was there concerns, again, you're a mysterious man, was there concerns that they were going to chop it off? No, absolutely. That's why then um, this Dr Costa, the Italian doctor, ended up saving my leg. He, he organised a medical aircraft to, to, to come and retrieve uh, uh <clears throat> Kevin Schwantz, who was also injured uh, during the race, and myself, um, out of there and take us back to Italy because this guy had I'd said to him, um, said to the same doctor that uh, if my condition didn't improve, he was going to have to amputate uh, my leg within twenty four. Yeah, they told you that. They told the doctor. Yeah, told uh, Costa. So that's when he was just you know raced to put everything together to come and get us. And us being Kevin and myself. So were and you given that information at any point in time? Yeah, but, you know, not, not then. You right. know, I was just happy to get out of there because, you know, there was a long story, but it was a, a nightmare place. They don't use that, uh, that, that facility any longer. And, and through the investigation into why did this happen, um, after, after, after it all, all took place, uh, um, you know, the, the authorities there had mentioned had I had a motor vehicle accident on the motorway out the front of the the raceway they wouldn't have sent us to that hospital they would have sent us to a trauma clinic either in Amsterdam or in Groningen you know so you know at that point in time again this is a you know now the medical um uh all all, all the medical um bits and bobs around the 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 moto gp is is now first class you know everything is is thought about back then okay that's the closest uh, that's the closest medical facility we use at you know it's just you know it's evolved a lot since then but mm. it evolved a lot in 92 from where it was in 1970 but i mean it was still, still had a fair way to go still had a fair way to go so they were just using the cheapest and most convenient sources of medical um, expertise as they could instead of going well or lack of well instead of going we need you know this is this is pretty high dangerous they, they knew it's you know it's very dangerous but we need you know you know we've got an ambulance we got a we got a bloody um you know a helicopter there for the worst of the worst stuff but i mean but the minor stuff can turn tragic fairly quickly which is uh, like what happened myself so you know and and you know this guy was wanting to amputate my leg because to get rid of his mistakes what he'd what he'd done so so which wasn't good you know and uh, and then the the you know so but anyway that's that's another thing that um 
you know, it's it, uh, unfortunate, but it, that, that's life. So Dr. Costa patched you up and you were, you, you, there's a strange picture of you and you've got like your both legs almost in one cast. That's right. So that, so uh, one was on top of the other. Yeah, so, so, um, so he'd sewed, well not him, well he was part of the team that had physically sewed my left leg to my right leg to supply it with with blood and oxygen and to get everything um from the other leg yeah so to get it to try and rebuild that to get it um to to, to get life back into it essentially and are you and sitting there are you sitting there at this stage worried about your leg or your health or thinking i lead the championship by 65 points there's x number of races left i've got to get back in business yeah the latter the latter <laughs> you're an idiot all you small blokes you're idiots you know you're like hindsight's a wonderful thing but i mean to be honest i wouldn't have changed anything no. to, you know because again everything else would have changed so so how long how long was that period before you, you know it wasn't right? too long you know i i, I recall uh, Costa saying at the time that my leg was broken, he, he had said that I didn't need to do any surgery, that he'll be back in, in Bologna in, on Tuesday, this is a Friday, that, um, you know, put it in a plaster cast and you'll be back for Brazil, which is Brazil was six, seven weeks away, you know. There was a two weekend break, which was unusual, you know, and then we were, you know, we're in Holland and then we're going to be in Hungary and in three weeks so two weekends off so you know i said okay well that rio doesn't seem like um, um uh not rio it was uh, paulo then but uh, i said into lagos into lagos i said you know that's that's not my preferred option what about if if i bolt this thing together you know how how quick can i be back and he said oh if it's done correctly you know perhaps you can be back you know for for um for hungary in a few weeks time and I went, well, fucking, what are we waiting here for? Let's go. So they stuck bolts in it? Well, they, yeah, sort of bolted it, uh, put plates and pins and and, uh, and put it together. And so that that was the start of the, the downfall, you know. But um, and How do you mean? Well, I think the surgery and the surgi- surgical procedure was done incorrectly. incorrectly right. And that's why then Costa was also thrown out of the of the surgery, of the, of the theatre, because it was, you know, he could notice that they were doing things wrong. But back then he couldn't perform in Holland, you know, being an Italian. I see now. But I see. Um, but anyway, that. Um, um, so yeah. Anyway, I made it back full into Lagos, but I didn't have the strength, and um, you know, I. Uh, uh, so and and then that year they changed the points as they had the year prior to that, whereas there was fifteen races, only thirteen counted. So I lost on, on a on the count back on that by just a couple of points to Rainey, and then. And then uh, 92, they changed it. You only score points to the 10th position. I finished 11th. So then they put it back. 93, they put it back to... <laughs> just put it back to how it used to be. Right. You know, because then... Uh, so that could have cost you the title. Uh, well, that certainly did. Had the points been, you know, but the points are the points, you yeah, know, if buts are maze, but, you know. So but it's weird, two two years in a row, sort of I ended up missing out. And the following next race was in uh, two weeks later in... Uh, in... in um, in South Africa, and so I went straight back to Italy after after Brazil, and, and just started working on fitness. And I think I finished uh, qualified on the front row in, in in South Africa, but finished sixth, I think. And I needed and Rainey finished third, so he just scored enough points to beat me. And to be honest, it was probably a godsend that he did beat me because my leg was well and truly still screwed. And uh, had he had he had he beat me, I probably just would have thrown the towel in, you know, it, um, because it was just it was too hard to get over. But because I uh, hadn't won a title, I felt that I still could, and I felt that you know riding with with essentially one leg and and no rear brake in, in South Africa, I figured if I get some strength back, work a rear brake somehow, that you know if I can if I can near beat these guys with one leg and no and only one <laughs> one braking device on mm. the bike that, that perhaps there's a there's a shot at it so so, so i worked on um worked on getting myself fit first first of all just retaining a position because you know gardner was just um you know gardner uh was being replaced with daryl Beatty, and um and gardner was now fighting for a uh, you know he 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 retired but he didn't want to sort of retire if you can if you understand what i'm saying and yeah. uh, he um, so he was suggesting to Honda that I'll never be the same, and you know, 
so on and so forth. And then, you know, Honda were sort of saying, well, perhaps you should just take a bit of time out and relax and, you know, we can put in, you know, put in a few riders to fill in the gaps and, uh-huh, you yeah. know, and like I was saying earlier, you're only a spare part, you know, yep. so so I was reluctant to do that. So so I just pushed through 93, um, doing what I could and to to get the bike keeping uh, your seat keep keeping the seat warm yeah <laughs> and you know getting a, a a brake that could work and and uh, and whatnot but you know the my leg uh, was still far from healed and if, if anything was getting worse it was starting to fall over you know i had about a 25 degree angulation in the leg um, by the time I, I i gave the season away that in 93 but you could grab my ankle and, and my knee and actually flex the flex the bone you know but um um, so, uh, so, uh, so it wasn't until the end of that year that I, I ended up putting a scaffolding device on my leg and, and uh, getting it straight and compressing it, getting the infection out of the bone and, and whatnot, and then uh, and then come back for '94, and then and the rest of it was history, really. Five on the trot, which we'll yeah. get to, and, and we don't have a great deal of time because you've got things you've got to do. Just a couple of sort of general questions, Mick. Is there fear? Is there fear on the bike or when you've got to get back on the bike or when you've got to push the bike? Do you feel fear on a motorbike at any time? I, I think you have to have fear. Yeah, so know? how do you overcome that fear if you feel it? Well, you use it to your advantage. You how know? do you do that? So, you know, I think you're a danger to yourself in life if you don't have fear, you know. And uh, But you've got to understand, you've got to understand the consequences and you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to do your homework. So you've got to make sure that you've covered all of your bases to 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 eliminate the the likelihood of things going wrong so so um so as long as you've prepared yourself then you know a lot of the fear has subsided you're mentally prepared physically prepared machinery prepared you know you know whole different scenarios Mm. you're prepared for you know but then you still need to sit with inside the parameters so if you didn't have the fear you'd be outside the boundaries all the time, which then becomes hazardous for your health and, and other things. So I think that's the same in general life. You've got to know where the boundaries are, but, you know... But you guys must the have the ability to push past the average punter's boundary. I, I think, again, most sports people or other, you know, people who have, who have achieved in a lot of things generally, but, the, but they're generally calculated moves, you know. You, you can get the odd random, mm. you know, crazy... You know, geez, I did well. I don't know how, but <laughs> geez, I did well. But they're generally not consistent results. So, you know, but fear is something that most, especially in motorsport, but I'd imagine in footballs and in, in anything that has an element of risk involved that you'd use for your advantage. Check out our back catalogue of episodes of the Howie Games. Daddy's episodes, you mean, Penguin. Ease up, Pickle. He's got nothing without us. True, we've got the mean machine, Danny Green. The forever Lucian Brendan Fabola. Old Golden Tonsils himself, Dennis Gametti. The dude, Darren Slammy. Gilly, Jack Jones, Larry and Jack Perkins. And last week's ep with the King of Madras, Dean Jones. Anyway, I'm 38 not out. I'm put down my back quietly and I'm amongst a new environment, so I'm really quiet as a church mouse. And Ray Bright says, everyone get a beer. So they all got a beer, and I said, I want to raise a glass to Dino. I thought, gee, that's a real nice touch, you know. He said, you are the worst Victorian batsman I've ever seen play for Victoria. And everyone laughed at me. So that was your initiation into Victoria. That was my initiation in Victorian cricket. Yeah. So, so what do you say in that situation? So nothing. I can see now it's still no. taking you back there. It does. Yeah, yeah, and that's not right. You've got to love Dino. Hit us up anytime on social media, Facebook or Twitter at MarkHoward03. Tell us what you think about the Howie games, what we could do differently, potential guests, what you don't like about it, maybe even what you do like about it. That'd be great. All right, time now to go back to Mick Doohan. Is it a great... How do you describe it when you're completely in command of the bike and you're going up, you know, 280, 290, 300, 310 kilometres an hour, when you're in command and going at that speed, is it, is it fun? Is it an adrenaline rush? Is it, 
a whole other plane. How does it feel? Yeah, it's all of that, is you it? know. But um, it makes you smile now. And you no, haven't done it for a while. No, just the way you're you're talking about it. Right. you're getting excited. Yeah, well, because <laughs> but, I, I see the uh, Phillip Island, and but, I, but, but, but I mean, it is all that. But it, uh, I said earlier, speed doesn't really come into it. It's only when you make a mistake that you realise how fast you go. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I guess. You know, if you're off in the grass, you know, at 300 kilometres an hour, going, geez, you know, I was going to say something else, but you know, I don't know who we're. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> we're good. This, this is the good thing about it. But, you can uh, say whatever you want. I, but uh, but you know, when really like how am I going to pull this thing up you know on the grass you haven't got a lot of uh, a lot of stopping force you know and um, um, so that's when you realize how fast you're going but it's pushing again going back to the fear it's pushing the boundaries that's what's exciting you know how far you know you know where the limits are and you want to ride as close to the limit as you possibly can and that's what's exciting so the speed's not really the sure the acceleration and the deceleration and and a bunch of other things are all all elements of that but it's just knowing that you're right on the edge and there's not one more millimeter or or or, or, or anything you can you can reek out of that thing you personally and you've done it better than anyone else so nobody else seems to have done any better mm. that's what really is the exciting thing just know that you know you feel like as if you won with the machine and you just you can do anything with it but but again there's that line you know that you know <laughs> that's just right there you can see it you know but you're sort of just hovering along the edge of it so but you know that's so just knowing that you've been able to control that that's what excites you the reason I smile, because you mentioned Randy Mamela before, he took me on that two-seater a few years ago at Phillip Island. And in this job, you get to do some great things. And, you know, you go left at Phillip Island, left, left, you sit on the back, and then you go right. And I, I didn't stop laughing for two days, Mick. It was yeah. just so much fun. Yeah. And that's when someone else is controlling it. So I, hence the fact I asked what it's like when you're actually controlling yourself. Um, well, he, he's lost a few recently, so it's good. That... <laughs> I, don't to, I don't want to hear that. Well, they're still alive. Oh, but that's I mean... okay. Okay. <laughs> but I mean... And one of the guys, he got an offer to go and, go and do it again, which he took up, you know. Did he? That's good. he didn't get to complete the lap. Right. Well, I don't think I'd be signing up <laughs> no. for a second crack. So then, Mick, um, you win five on the trot, and it's easy for me to say that, and there's a lot of tears and joy and heartbreak. You had a season where you won 12 out of 15 races. What's it like when you're the king of the jungle, when you, you roll up at every race knowing that if you perform at your best, you're going to win? Look, it's it's that's a bit of pressure, you know. And um, you know, I had a great year with Daryl Beater in '95. After winning '94, the first one, the pressure was to try and win because I'd always said to myself that I wanted to win two back to back. So then the pressure of actually having to having you know you can win, but having to win, you got also pressure from other people expecting you to win, you know. And then that's when you generally mess up. And um, um, so. So that taught me in 95 a lot that I've got to sort of try and work out how to deflect a lot of this pressure that, uh, and then they've just become about winning, winning the races. So, so yeah, I knew that I had good machinery. I knew that I was capable of winning. I knew that I had a great team. I knew that uh, um, X, Y, Z. So now I just needed to perform. So I just prepare myself <clears throat> best I could. So, you know, you were talking about training. I train sort of every other day somewhere in the vicinity of three to four hours and then and then two on the days when, when I wasn't doing so much. And just so mentally I knew that I'd done enough. And um, and so, so from there on in, it was just about winning races. It wasn't about um, a championship. It wasn't about anything. I knew if I'd won enough races, the championship would take care of itself. And, and for me, the instant gratification of winning, that's yep. what I like doing, you know, was enough to keep me there. Otherwise, the pressure of... You know the the, the 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 sponsors, the media, the the team, the the manufacturers, and and that was one of the reasons. Then I I really only ever signed one year contracts too, because if I'd had a gutful, I just didn't want to have the com, the commitments to have to go again. But so did uh, you get satisfaction at the end of the year winning a world title? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Right. But I just didn't want. I just it was my way of deflecting a lot of the the pressures yeah, of everyone going. Hey, you know, you got to. How come? What happened today? You didn't win. You know. So if I could try and minimise that and just stay within my own little world, you know, if, if you can put it at that at the racetrack, then, um, then I knew I had my best shot at, uh, at, at having longevity and, uh, and going from that. Because, again, the rest of it, um, you know, just, just chasing championships is, you know, it's fun to win at the end of the year, but chasing championships once you've got one or two, then it's a, it's a different story. 
Um, and it's it's obvious, and obvious everyone listening in this, that you're a, a private chap, and I respect that. So there's a couple of things that are, are more lighthearted. Uh, I, I expected you to be a good Aussie sort of beer-drinking man. Daz explained to me that you blokes would never drink for a certain period before races, and you, you train extremely hard. He told me occasionally you duck out of Florida, and he explained to me a drink you blokes would occasionally have, which, to be honest, Mick, um, you went, well, you went down in my estimation, to be honest. No, I was unsure if I was going to bring it up, but can you tell the people what you and Daz used to drink yeah, together? Yeah, no, we used to have the odd chlora of milk. <laughs> it was, like, we were pretty Come wild. We were, we were pretty wild, yeah. So. But, uh, but that was, that was, uh, that was, there was another guy, um, Eddie Lawson, that was, you know, so right. that, that's where we got on with that. Right. It wasn't bad, but if you drink enough of it, it's all right. Right. But yeah. that, that was generally the starting Right, that was the starting point, <laughs> starting was it? point, you know. Do you still have a Kalua milk today oh, or not? you know, generally, uh, generally, maybe on a Sunday evening, perhaps, <laughs> you know, watching, watching, uh, watching you guys on the TV, just something to sort of like slowly numb, <laughs> numb me a little bit, but no, you know, generally more of a wine uh, right, a wine right. a wine man. I'm glad you matured in that area Mick and but you know but yeah no certainly I didn't uh, you know I can't say too much about the other guys but certainly I didn't drink a lot no that's he explained was, that to me when I was competing and you know he so, said when there was a certain amount of days before a race yeah. you'd be just like nah it's yeah. got nothing to do with me I'm here and I'm here that's to win. right and, and, that, and that was you know like we said earlier I, I just wanted to know and the reason I didn't drink I just wanted to know that if if I made a mistake throughout the weekend or, or whenever that it was my fault it wasn't because I'm, I'm still picking myself up off the floor from the Kalura milk <laughs> from, from, from being lacto- lactose intolerant <laughs> lactose intolerant now I've heard of all so at, the, at that stage um, and it, it's I guess it's public knowledge you know you're earning serious amounts of money five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten million dollars you're living in Monaco what's that life like away from the racetrack do you pinch yourself do you ever look at your bank balance and think look at geez look what they're paying me to do what I love to do or is it you're out there risking life and limb and you deserve every cent of what you get yeah look you know again at the end of the day sport becomes business as well so. yeah so you're only doing it for a short period of time, and when you're in a commanding position, then you, you know, you're able to sort of move the boundaries of what the the the, the numbers being paid the same today in in all different My sports word. as well. But um, but yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, you know, I still pinch myself today. You know, the you know I was fortunate enough to be able to get myself in a position and then able to sustain a career long enough to be able to 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 put myself in that position and. Um, but uh, you know, I never in a million years, you know, thought that as that kid running around on a two fifty cc production bike, going shit, you know, this is, you know, you know, living living off some prize money, you'd you'd make at Lakeside or Orham Park or, or wherever or Winton, you know, um, thinking that you know life's going to dramatically turn around within a couple of years. But but I mean, that's the great thing about life and about sport and about anything that you focus in on you just never know you know if you have a dream just put your head down and don't give up you know because the other guys give up and you know um anything's possible you mentioned business you were living in monaco was it uh, surreal living in monaco look I, I liked it it was certainly wasn't sort of the first place i'd thought about and it certainly wasn't the first place that i looked to move to either but but i actually quite enjoyed it you know um you know i looked at a few other places which um, you know, number one, they, they didn't speak English. In Monaco, a lot of people speak English, and um, so which is a, is a, is a, is a, a help. I, I came from the Gold Coast, uh, water around everywhere. Monaco surrounded by water, mm. um, and and the place, you know, good weather. So it 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 ended up being actually a nice place to live, and um, you know, and I was living there and. It's a small community. You got great friends. I still have great friends there, and um, you know everything is so close. So, although it was a, um, you know, it uh, certainly again the furthest thing that I could think about, you know, going to move to Monte Carlo and live there in five years, that was never a dream. <laughs> you know, it was. Uh, it just became a great place to base. You know, some people. I think Gardner was one was living there at the time, so that's why the only reason I went down there to have a look at the place, and, and I actually quite enjoyed it. And, um, oh, why wouldn't you? But, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's only a small place, and, yeah. and yes, there's a lot of uh, 
you know, fluff and wank and, and whatever else there. Well, not fluff being that type of fluff, but I mean, oh, no, exactly but I'm sure mean. that is there. Well, you know, I was focused again. Of course you were, <laughs> but, aren't you, Kahlua's? But, <laughs> your lactose intolerancy. <laughs> but, uh, but um, you know, all that bullshit aside, it's it's actually, a, it's just another little village and, um, and like-minded individuals, honestly, living down there. There's other people for sport, people for business, people whatever. Is that how you've retained who you are by acknowledging that there is a lot of bullshit, as you put it? when you become a world-famous, successful, affluential, influential athlete? Well, I think you have to. I think at the end of the day, you don't need to change regardless what you've done, you know. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you work in the media, I work in motorsport. That's all we do, you know. And people, some people are musicians, some people in business, some people whatever. But at the end of the day, we all uh, we all end up pushing daisies up, That's don't it, we? we do. You know what I mean? So... So I think if I think if once you start to lose focus on that side of things, that's, I think you stop learning. And as as a as a sports person, I think you know you've got to take it all in. Otherwise, you know you, you're going to miss so many things which could be so beneficial to you. You're. Uh, I look at it now, and obviously you've been pretty successful in business, and you we're at your beautiful place. And I presume that's your boat. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a piece of art. That one hasn't used for hasn't hasn't moved for about five or six years. Right. What about the chopper in the garage? Does that move very that, often? That, or moves, yeah. that moves occasionally. <laughs> well, what would you say to someone that wants to be successful in business? Because you've gone beyond your sport, and I don't I don't understand. It's none of my business. What your business is, but you're seen as a very astute businessman. Well, I I, um, I just try and apply the same principles as. Uh, as I, I, I had done when I was competing and um, you know n- number one you know be honest to yourself and have you know ask questions and <laughs> have the right people yeah with you and um, and don't be afraid to make mistakes you know and um, the uh, you know but also stay within those those guidelines you know because consistency is key and um, and like I say over the uh, with with the sport the same thing nothing happened overnight it was a it was it certainly, ex, you know, the, the the path was quick, but I mean, we still had to had to take those steps. So, do you, do you but get, I enjoy the I enjoy the um, I enjoy the business side of things just by by dealing with people and dealing and doing, you know, for me it's the same thing as as competing, you know, doing a deal or or winning on on something is the same for me as. Do, do you competing. get a similar feeling? I do, yeah, you know, right. especially you know, and uh, the same, you know, losing, which you know you do as well, mm, <laughs> certainly word. certainly doesn't uh, sit well with me, and you know, so working and striving to to be, you know, better than than I was yesterday is always uh, is always appealing to me. Uh, just a couple of very quick thoughts, Valentino Rossi, as a guy. As a racer? As a racer. Yeah, look, amazing. So, is he the best? You know, he's the best at the moment without a shadow of a doubt. And, and his longevity um, certainly suggests that, uh, that he's one of the best because, you know, most, most people either give up, mm. you know, they're tired, mentally tired, or they've been injured. On. Pushes on, doesn't he? You know, so, you know, so he's um, certainly, he's certainly got both. He's certainly got the talent and he's certainly got the longevity and the love of the sport. So I think as a, as a whole, you'd have to say that, you know, there's probably not too many people who've, who've loved it as much as he has to just want to continue and keep going. So, you know, numbers, statistics, you know, speak, speak volume, big volume for him because, you know, the amount of races he's competed in and the amount of races he's won, you know, and I'm just talking the MotoGP. Mm. Forget about the smaller stuff. Like our sport seems to combine all the smaller stuff with the larger stuff, you know, whereas F1, they don't do that. Whereas if you just look at MotoGP, he's, he's head and shoulders above... Um, My word, he is. Uh, ...above everyone. So, you know, that's that's clear that he's, uh, he's, he's the man. I sat down with Larry and Jack Perkins not long ago for another episode of the Howie Games, and Larry was saying as a young bloke with Jack, he, he tried to give him golf clubs, tried to give him a tennis racket, tried to give him all these things to keep him away from motorsport because he didn't want him to go through being the son of a gun. Uh, your young bloke at the moment, he's only a young fella. Mick, he's flying. He's going really well on his go-karts. Um, how's it going to be for him to follow your name if he sticks in motorsport, or is that just not even an issue? You know, I believe that he's he's in he's on four wheels which which helps to a degree had he been on two wheels right you know certainly that would have been a, a more difficult task for him because again they'll be um, you know it's Mick Doohan's son and and you know and then you know it's happened in the past with Kenny Roberts Jr and Senior you know everyone's still thinking about the old man even though the son ended up winning a world champion he's not the same as the old man and 
Yeah. Whereas four wheels, I've done relatively nothing other than a few play races on four wheels. So, so he's doing it all by himself. So Jack, so, yeah, yeah, Jack. Jack's, yep. So he's he's not. He, he, nobody ever judges him against you know what I've done, because our minds on two wheels, completely different disciplines. So, you know, again, um, you know, he's getting tall for thirteen. So you know, maybe. Maybe the, the the motorsport career will end, and I and I can just buy him a pair of shoes and a basketball. <laughs> Life will get a lot cheaper for me. Yeah, well, and a bit safer too. <laughs> well, a bit safer as well, I know, guess. You know, I actually don't mind this, that side of it. You know, motorsport, you know, sure is inherently dangerous, but you know, the four wheel side's a bit better. Um, sure, and that sort of is also part and parcel of why I prefer him to to race on four wheels. But but he, that was his choice. Um, but you know, the most the most dangerous thing we all do is hop in a motor vehicle mm. and drive ourselves around. At least I know that I could, you know, you can send him out when he's 17 in a motor vehicle and he knows what a car does and how it reacts. So at least, if nothing else, it's um, taught him how to drive and it's given him some focus to, to work out and he understands exactly all the, all the things I mentioned about, you know, hard work pays off and, and stay focused and, and you, you do well. So... All those principles. I think any sport is fantastic for kids and keep them focused. But, but yeah, it, um, it wouldn't disappoint me if he uh, if he gets a bit taller. <laughs> now, Mick, I, I always finish this. Um, I've got two kids, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, and the four-year-old, his name is Mac. But as people with the Howie games, listen, probably a year and a half ago, he woke up one day and he said, I've changed my name to the Big Penguin. So he just rolls as the big penguin. So I always tell the kids over breakfast who I'm going to have a chat with for the Howie Games, um, and then I ask a question. So this is the big penguin's question to you. Hi, Mick. Big penguin here. I love doing patches on my big boy's um, mongoose bike. Can you do any tricks on your motorbike? He likes doing patches. Can you do any tricks on your motorbike, Mick? Uh, not any longer. I'm too old there, <laughs> Penguin. But but, uh, but um, I used to do some tricks. I I used to hurt myself trying to <laughs> try and do um, try and do uh, to perfect them. But um, but no, I like how you're enthusiastic and um, and um, and I was good at doing a few different tricks on on motorbikes and and. Um, you know, wheelies and um, and and I don't know what a patchy is that a slide? Yeah, big yeah, slide. Yeah, so big I slide. was good at doing patchies on, on the motorcycles <laughs> good, as good. well. <laughs> hey Mick, um, listen, I really appreciate your time. The fact that you've put me on a plane tomorrow from the Gold Coast <clears throat> to get down to Bathurst directly, I really, really appreciate because it's a long drive. Otherwise, um, as I said, we worked together in the past, but I didn't really know much about you. So just thanks for having a chat and being really open and having a chat with us, mate. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Five-time world champion and champion bloke Mick Doohan. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks as always to Michael James, our producer, who gets the Howie Games to air no matter what disasters may befall us during the week. Make sure you continue to spread the love. Tell everyone you know about the Howie Games. Until next Thursday, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try Listener